Hey folks, welcome to Teach Me to Fish. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Our purpose is to help leaders better understand what drives people to serve. In any organization, the core of its recruiting and retaining talent revolves around leadership. And not just average leadership, but motivated, values-based, inspirational leadership. Our pursuit here is to get a little bit better every day. Progress equals small victories and stacking habits. Habits like getting up early, working your butt off, learning something new, being positive, and surrounding yourself with phenomenal people. I'm thankful for you taking some time to think about the kind of people and experiences in your life that inspire you to be the best version of yourself. Maybe you're out on a walk, on a run, or commuting to work. Whatever you're doing today, thanks for investing some time for yourself and sharing your thoughts on today's conversation with someone you care about. I hope today's conversation sparks some ideas on what you can do to inspire people too. I've been looking forward to to having this conversation though for a long time because we've we've lived next to each other and I've known you now for over four years. Yeah, I think we uh, started in 2019 once I graduated Sam's and came back here um, to do my field grade time. So, and yeah. so we've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years. We've we talked a lot. We've hung out a lot. <laughs> uh, we've served a lot. Yep. Um, I hope we get to the point where you talk about the the Humvee and the shaving. Like that that's one of my favorite stories. Yep, mine um, too. Yeah, uh, and so, but me and you know each other, right? And so, some of the folks that are going to listen to this don't know who Chad Taylor is. Um, and and I'm not. I never read off like the ORBs and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And like you know, Chad Taylor is this, this, and this, and that. Yeah. But like, who who's Chad Taylor, and what do you want people to know about you? Who you are? Oh man, well, I think I've went through some evolutions. But I mean, if if we're going off of who I am today, I would say my underpinning and the way that I you know I view the world, the way I view relationships, the military. Uh, is through my my faith in Jesus Christ. Um, it's it's the faith based world view, and that's how I approach the different problems. Um, so with that, I would say you know the way I've come to my realization of what life is and the way I want to live it and the way I want to interact with people is kind of my br- my being brought up as a military brat. Um, I lived in Asia Minor and Europe uh, as a from you know, one years old to about 13. Uh, so I got to see a lot of different things, a different perspective than what you would, you know, find in the U.S. Uh, growing up here. Um, so that helped to uh, formulate my understanding of, of, of the world. And then, you know, I was a military brat, like I said before. So 
my father was a strict Southern black man. Uh, my mother was adopted uh, German uh, from the Eastern Bloc uh, before the wall came down. Um, so I got some uh, diversity there uh, with how I was brought up. Uh, but it was still, again, faith-based from from both my, my parents. Um, so growing up and getting out uh, at 18 years old, I was there in uh, the Midwest or around Kansas City area. I uh, went to college there, met my wife, uh, who changed my life. And uh, maybe we can get into that later uh, with the way, again, the, the way I, I perceive the world and, you know, how and who I should be. Uh, she helped to change me back to the way my parents, I think, originally wanted me to be structured. Yeah. Um and I have two beautiful children, Jada and Ava. Jada, the oldest, soon to be 16. Ava is the 13-year-old, uh, big into sports, big into God, uh, big into taking care of people. Um, the same types of things my parents originally, you know, wanted for me and my wife helped me to get back to. And then lastly, I'd say, you know, I'm a, uh, I am a soldier. Um, and I don't think that defines me as a person. I think it's just part of me. Uh, but it is defined, again, and those evolutions, the way that I see life, um, because I think that it's a human experience as a soldier with some very taboo things that most people don't get to experience. Um, so it has made me very grateful through all those experiences from a young child to now, uh, from being raised by my parents, as I explained, to the hardships and the great you know times I've had in the military that just make me very, very thankful for where I am who I am, you know, what God has blessed me with, you know, regardless of the pain going through it and uh, the pleasures as well. So uh, I'd say that's, that wraps me up uh, pretty well. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that or not. That Chad, that was awesome. i tell you the, the way you kind of wrap that up, the way you, you just spit that out in like three to three to five minutes or something, probably two to three minutes is the reason that I think instantly the first time I met you, I knew you were different. Than mm-hmm. everybody else. And I say that because Hopefully that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's because I value the same things. I had children as a second lieutenant. Right? Yep. I've been in the army my entire adult life mm-hmm. since I was 17 years old, right? This is what we do. Yeah. And, but it isn't who we, who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my family, my values, yep. you know, all those same things. Like when we spoke the first time, I knew we, we had everything in common. Yeah. You know, our kids were the same age. Our girls were the same age. We enjoyed the same things. We saw mm-hmm. the army the same way. We saw our life the same way. We yep. saw our lives the same way. And so, you know, when you see somebody, you meet somebody, you don't need to, you don't need to have you know. hours of conversation. You know, you know, you can feel it. And you're yep. like, Hey, there, there's something about the tailors. We're going to get along with those people. Yeah. We felt the same way. We said the yeah. second we got back in the house, I was like, I know he outranks me by a lot, but. Uh, I hope I don't we can become like friends. Like it ain't that much. You will be doing the same thing I'm doing here uh, uh, we'll in a couple of years, uh, <laughs> for sure. The way you summarize that, though, there was a lot of things into a three-minute three mm-hmm. you know, thing. So what we're going to do, though, is is we're going to try to kind of get this this conversation into a little bit of a structure without, in any way, shape, or form, yeah, uh, going off of a script. Because you know, Matt Leclaire, there ain't no script in my life. <laughs> Right, this wasn't this wasn't a script. And you I do know what Chris tells you to do. That's what you do. That's right. <laughs> Amen. And you do what Kelly does, yep. and, and then you put the two together, and then we, we'll be okay. So, but but I want to keep a little bit of a structure okay. to to the direction at which we kind of go Absolutely. to make sure we hit some of those things that you talked about in those first you know three to five minutes. 
we're going to start off with like why you joined, mm-hmm. right? And at any moment when you start to get into those things, please dive off and, okay. and, and talk about it. Why you joined, why, what kind of experiences you had, the people that influenced your life, mm-hmm. why you stayed. Because the reason that you stayed might not be the same reason that you joined. Absolutely. Your family, your faith, you talked about how important that was. I know there's some things that I'm, uh, folks are going to love to hear mm-hmm. about some of the challenges that you went through uh, throughout your military career uh, because we all have challenges mm-hmm. and we want to hear some of those. Okay, uh, absolutely. About what and how in the way that you tackle them because the way you tackle them, a lot of people can learn from that. You also have a special gift when it comes to a support network mentors, people Mm -hmm. that care about you, people that have influenced and helped you along the way, having mentors, having a, having a support network, Mm -hmm. right? We've all heard the, the, you are the average of the five people you spend the most amount of your time with. Yes. And, and and then advice for leaders, then we'll kind of wrap things up with a, so what are we going to do? I can't wait. So what, right? Um, But what is it that Chad Taylor, what, what made Chad Taylor join the army? in the first place. So I've, I've had this conversation uh, with you before and, and a multitude of others. And uh, I've had the, the time in which to think about that. I would say it, it starts off with what I talked about earlier. So I was a military brat. I saw my father, you know, be an officer in the military. He was a signal officer. I saw the struggles that he dealt with in the eighties and the nineties as a, you know, a black man in the army. I didn't really understand it when I was younger. I didn't understand it until I got in the army, uh, but it, I was very proud of him. I was proud of my mother and what she did to support him and, you know, what uh, they as, as, a, as a couple, as a married couple did for me and my, my sister. So that, that, that was part of it. You know, you want to be your dad. My dad's my hero. Um, I, it's very hard to talk about him. You'll probably see that. Um, but I got to see at a young age that there are a multitude of people, millions, billions of people that don't get to live like we do in the U.S. And I got to see both sides because, like I told you, Asia Minor, Europe was there until I was a teenager. And I came back to the to the mainland. And the freedom that we talk about all the time in the Army uh, is not uh, realized in many other countries. The, the safety nets that we have in the U.S. for our poor, for uh, those that may not be poor but still struggling – those are not something that exists in the countries that I lived in, some of them. Um, so I was probably 10 years old and I, I watched a, a woman on the side of the street. Uh, and the only way that she could make money was sell herself. And she had seven, eight, nine kids. And I remember walking to church one day in Izmir, Turkey. And uh, there was a, a distinct smell um, around this woman. And later on, we found out that she had taken one of her children that had died because she couldn't feed them. And the baby couldn't have been more than maybe a couple months old. And the baby was rotting in her arms. Um, and so, I mean, obviously that was a little traumatic for me as a young kid. But as I grew older, I understood the economic reasons for that happening because there wasn't a safety net in Turkey like there was in the U.S. And the cops would walk right past her. So as I saw things like that, I said, what could I do? Because my parents taught me to be empathetic. They taught me to do what the Word of God, the Bible says to do, to help those that are poor, help those that are hurting, uh, help those oppressed. What could I do in life to help them? Um, and that was a big, well, probably one of the biggest driving factors. Um, and as I looked through all the plethora of you know, education options and degrees that you could get, 
there was cops, you know, obviously that, that is a very honorable job. Firefighters, you know, a doctor, which I'm not smart enough to be. Uh, but there's a lot of different things that you could do to help folk. But I had a, a, a global look or, or, or global world view and the military. I understood that because of what my father had done and I'd saw him help people where we had lived. Um, so I started trekking that way. Um, Secondly, I would say I joined because as the war started when I was in high school in 2001, I didn't graduate till 2002 and saw what was happening in Afghanistan. I said, you know what? I'm an athletic guy. I'm a little more of an aggressive guy. Anybody knows me. They know that's how I am. Uh, I was ready to fight anyone and everybody at the same time. Um, I was like, what in the army could I do? Well, infantry was it. Infantry are the people that take the fight to those that need the fight taken to them. And so I said, that's what I'm going to do. It's infantry or bust. And uh, so I pursu- uh, pursued infantry um, and lucked out. And you know, I say lucked out. God placed me there. So the two between wanting to protect physically people that could not protect themselves to helping people uh, during the operations of the military, they conduct to help those around us globally. It was a perfect fit. And uh, I have not looked back since 2003 when I enlisted in the National Guard uh, and then went active duty in 2006 as a commission officer from the University of Kansas. So that was probably the biggest things. Dad, global view, and uh, helping those that can't help themselves in a physical way. Yeah. I love how you summarize the the three things kind of right there at the end. You said you enlisted and then you did three to six years in the, three years in the National Three years Guard. in the Guard. Yeah, just over. How, how, what's the process from uh, enlisting, going into the National Guard? Were you simultaneous membership program in I college? Was. And what school were you going to? Yep. So I, I went to a school called University of Wash, or Washburn University. That's where I played football for a couple of years. And um, I enlisted in the Kansas National Guard, infantry heavy is what they called it back then, Bradleys and such. Um, simultaneous membership program. Uh, a, a one of my first mentors uh, in the army was a captain at the University of Kansas, who was our overarching ROTC program because Washburn was too small to have its own battalion. And he said, "Hey, look, man, you'll get paid more when you get into the army. You'll get experience from NCOs that have deployed already, um, and you only have to do one weekend a month." I was like, "Perfect." So enlisted and uh, did that for like three years and three months. Made it to E five. From there, once I commissioned, then, you know, that contract breaks and you go active duty. And I was, or I was picked up for active duty uh, as a commission officer. So. ROTC, did you, and you knew infantry, inf- you said infantry or bust. Mm-hmm. Uh, but any experiences while you were in with, with ROTC that like, that you look back on now and you say, because of those experiences with ROTC, not just infantry or bus, but how to become a good infantryman and a good infantry officer. Absolutely. And if, to be honest, there's only about two or three examples with inside of ROTC, two NCOs, uh, one's working there, both uh, one E8, one E7. Um, they really motivated me from their experience in combat. Um, and, it, it, it likens itself to the things I told you why I wanted to go to the army. I mean, they were both infantry. They had done some, you know, they had done the deed uh, of what infantry does. So that was a big motivator. Then it was an ROTC cadet. He was our battalion commander, if you will, right, as an as a MS4. Um, he was always motivating. 
He was always worried about other people and, you know, what they were trying to do in their life. He would try to help them. So I got to see a great example of what a leader was, not only empathetic, but he was someone that would tell you the truth um, about yourself, about the situation. Uh, and he didn't hold any punches, but he didn't do it in such a way that he beat you down. Um, and I just grabbed onto him and and yeah. listened to everything that he said. And it helped that he was a physical stud. Uh, he ended up going aviation. Um, and I believe he's still in. Um, but to be honest, the, the most uh, motivating factor for wanting to go infantry and continue to push me, you know, to commission was in the National Guard. Uh, because we had active duty guys that went National Guard later on in their career, you know, around year 10 or so. Uh, they deployed to Iraq in 03. Um, and so the, the new experiences of those NCOs and officers, when we did the weekend, you know, one weekend a month, I got to sit down with them and talk to them about anything and everything. And, you know, yeah. infantry NCO. Yeah. yeah. Talking to a cadet, they wanted to tell me anything and everything that they could. Yes. Um, and there was some, there was some heartbreak in there. They lost some people in yeah. Iraq during the, uh, during the invasion. Um, and I got to see the real side of the army, the real side of combat, um, which is ugly, but then to see leaders that made it back and what they were doing to support those around them after those experiences and then willing to continue to serve even though they knew that they were probably going to deploy again and some of them were not going to make it back, that made it real to me. So the National Guard side, our experience was probably my biggest motivating factor as I was a cadet. Yeah. I I think what's what was happening then, which is slightly different than what's happening, what we feel like right now, is that now you can look back and say it was 18 years, Afghanistan, Iraq. Mm-hmm. In 2004, 2005, like we were only a couple of years in. Yeah. And we didn't know how long it was going to go. Mm-hmm. We didn't know if it was going to be two more years. We didn't know if it was going to be 18 more months. One more deployment. We'll get it right. We're going to mm-hmm. win before Christmas. Like, yep. this is it. We're going to do the surge and we're going to win, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be Afghanistan or Iraq. But then we didn't win. Yeah. And then four years later, again, we're, we're in a different situation. Mm-hmm. Now we're back in Afghanistan yeah. and we're in Afghanistan a lot more than we were in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And we didn't predict that. And um, so talk about how now, now we go from ROTC. Mm-hmm. Now you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. How was it from like commissioning? Commissioning. So it was, uh, it was great because my dad – was the one that did it with my mother and pinned me on. And uh, so that was phenomenal. I know my dad was super excited and, and just, you know, happy that you know, I was going to what he did and what he fought for, for, you know, 20 years. Once I commissioned, there, uh, there was a gap for about three months before I went technically active duty in 07 in February. And to be honest, I was, I was a little nervous because of what I had experienced with those individuals in the National Guard and talking to people about, you know, what they just finished doing. So the realization of I am now an officer in the Army, that transition from cadet and, you know, doing exercises and not really understanding what the real Army is uh, to now, hey, you're in it. And my dad, it it sticks with me today. He said, Chad, once you're in it, you're in it. I'm not going to be there with you. And it was Mm -hmm. that simple. And knowing that I was probably going to deploy, I was married already. Um, and we were planning to have children, which Jada came 
uh, Kelly conceived in, in uh, December of 2007. So what if I died like those that I knew in my unit, the National Guard, and I never got to see my child or, you know, my brand new wife that I loved more than anything? Um, all those emotions started flooding me, you know. So there was a, a, a period of, not going to say concern, it was a period of, of fear um, right. on top of a period of excitement because now I get to go do what I have been thinking about since I was about 14 years old. And so it wasn't just the commissioning ceremony. That was great. But it was the realization of the transition and what yeah. my dad said to me. And that was probably the most impactful thing that I'll never forget. And my dad was right. Once you're in it, you're in it. It is not a movie or video game anymore or a, a documentary. I think that's how I've couched the beginning of, or I, how I view the beginning of my career was that statement from my father, the realization that um, there could be hard times ahead, but very excited about what was going to come you know, from this. Excited to see how I developed and changed because my mm -hmm. parents talked to me about you will change throughout your life as long as you adhere to God's commandments, laws, what he wants for you in your life and you go to him, everything's going to be okay. I did not always do that. Yeah. And uh, that's something, you know, part of those evolutions I was telling, telling you about sure. that I'm not the person talking to you today is not the person I'm Amen. talking about 20 years ago. Yeah. And so Hunter said to me the a uh, couple of weeks ago, he said, a lot of times you skip straight to the, this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. But what, what you leave out is the 29 years of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, what Chad leaves out is, I'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. The transitioning from this is who you are at ROTC and your simultaneous membership program and you're with the National Guard. And now all of a sudden the pinning ceremony, you feel different. You're married. We're going to have a kid. Mm -hmm. It's probably about that when you're getting ready to leave Kansas. Mm -hmm. And it's off to Fort Moore, then Fort Benning. Yep. yep. Right? And so that that's like the first big transition for you. Absolutely. Like it's about to get different. And not only that, but um, I left without my wife. Um, I left for the first three months of 2007. So like uh, February, March, April. April, I was gone. I came back to visit three months later and bam, Kelly's pregnant. And I left again. And so Kelly only Kelly and I only saw each other twice in a year. So she stayed in Kansas. She stayed when in you Kansas. went to Fort Benning yep. to do then do, st still called Bullock, still yep. called I yep. IOBC. Ranger school, airborne school, all that stuff. So we got the army experience, just not in combat, of being apart for a year with like two RRs. And that was a conscious choice. Because you could have moved together. We could have. You could have moved to Fort Benning and got a place at Whisperwood mm -hmm. like me and Christy did with two boys and yep. your dog. And we had to try to figure all that out for, for five mm -hmm. months. Yep. But and you chose to for Kelly to stay in Kansas with a support network. Yep. Kelly and I made the decision. She was uh, working, uh, not a, the support network. And it's not what you want to tell your new wife of three months. I'm going to leave for a year. Where did her mom and dad live at this time? They're divorced, and Kelly's mother's in western Kansas. She lives on a 3,500-acre ranch in Gove, Kansas right now. And then her father is in Missouri, western side, Kansas City. Um, 
and, in a place called Smithville. And he's this been is there. where they. But did were they together or were they separated when you got married? They were separated when we got so, married. But they were so, both in Kansas. Uh, Kelly's dad's in Missouri. Missouri Kelly's mom's Missouri. in Kansas. Yep. And then your mom and dad are in Lansing, right next to Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, yes. And so you know, Kelly had people within you know an hour. Uh, my parents and then Kelly's dad's about an hour and a half house away. Or did you have an apartment then? We had an apartment. Okay. Yep. Um, and she had lived with her sister. And it, it just speaks to what I want, wanted to get at was it speaks to Kelly's character and it speaks to Kelly's resiliency, which she developed at a very young age. Uh, for just, How old were y'all at this point? We got married at 22. You're uh, both 22. Yep. We You're were both dating. 22. We're both 22. We both have the same uh, birthday. February 8th, 1984. Kelly is about four hours older than me. Get the hell out of here. Yep. She is four hours older. And so we met at 19 and uh, we're married at 22. We were engaged for over two years. She's like, yeah, do what you got to do. I'll hold it down. And and she was pregnant and I got to see maybe a month of it, uh, if that. Kelly has done almost everything by herself. Just the way things worked out through training and combat deployments and everything else. So uh, I just want to highlight that. My wife, at such a very young age, uh, was willing to take those types of adversarial things on and did exceptionally well. And then met me at Fort Liberty now, it was Fort Bragg, after I was done. And we continued from there. You know, that that's, that's why when you meet Kelly, you instantly know that she's different than everybody mm-hmm. else, too. N- yeah. More mature, mm-hmm. strong, got her shit together. Yep. Like not afraid to tell people what's up, mm-hmm. not afraid to give people the sideways look, <laughs> and not afraid to t- to say this is how it's gonna, this is how we're gonna we're gonna do it. Yeah, right? she got super me super confident, <laughs> super confident, and that's why I knew we were gonna get along with, yep. with, with just you like guys. your wife. Yeah. Like you said they run it, <laughs> and we also knowing those things. That's why we know when you get put in charge of a battalion, that battalion, those soldiers are gonna be lucky to have you too. Because of Thank the you. experience that you guys have been through. So when you got, you're going to have second lieutenants and you're going to have sergeants. You're going to have second lieutenants that were in the National Guard that just got married that are mm-hmm. trying to decide what to do. And you're going to have a second lieutenant that's going to walk into your office. And the first thing you're going to say is, where's your family? Yep. And they're going to say, he's going to say, hey, sir, I, I got my family back in Kansas. Uh, <laughs> and I'm waiting until I get things settled. Mm-hmm. And you're going to say... Get your shit settled. <laughs> yeah. Go get your family. And bring them here. And bring them here. Yep. And I don't want to see you again. Until you do Until it. you got a car yep. and a place for them to live. Mm-hmm. And everything's taken care of. And the kids are enrolled in school. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see you again until that. Yep. Like that's the kind of commander you're, you're going to be. And not the kind of commander that says, get to work. Yep. Figure out a time six months from now in the middle of leave mm-hmm. when you can get your family to move here. And to be honest, sir, I, I was not always a person that viewed it that way. Uh, people like you helped me to understand that uh, throughout my career uh, because I was treated as get to work. You helped me to understand why that is not right. And I'm sure so we'll why, look at that. You said, why is it not right? Why is it not right? Well, I think if you look at I don't see – I know our – Okay. Our career is a profession. Our, 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 what we do is a profession, but I, I see it more as a lifestyle than a profession. Um, because it, you volunteer to do something that could 
inevitably have you write a blank check for your life. Amen. And so it's not, and I don't want to disparage any other career field, but I can't think of another one out there um, that does exactly what we do. Yes, cops, absolutely. They do that every day and I, I love them for it. Um, but mm-hmm. the the level of violence, the the level of stress constantly, whether in garrison or deployed, is different. And so if the people that you are asking to write a blank check to or have them write a blank check to the United States of America, if they're not taken care of, if their family's not taken care of, how do you expect them to be focused to take care of everyone else that you are putting in charge or you're putting underneath them? Because they're not settled. They're not able to think clearly in the way that you need them to think and act and lead uh, because you didn't take care of them from the beginning. You didn't care about what was needed for a such taboo life. And that's why it's hard for other people to understand maybe even this conversation mm-hmm. uh, because they haven't experienced it. They just benefit from it. Yes. Um, and so people like you, like I said earlier, have helped me to understand that um, because that's not the army I, I came into. I came into an army that was at war, that was jaded in some ways, that had 60, 70% of my leaders uh, and, and soldiers had PTSD uh, because we asked them and had them do things that are unimaginable. Yeah. So you have to make sure at least the home front is taken care of before we send you out to do some of the most unspeakable things. A couple of words that, that came into my mind when you were saying that. Uncertainty. Mm-hmm. There's so much uncertainty in our world. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if you're on a ready force or if you're in a unit that's uh, could be deployed mm-hmm. at any time or is responsible for a certain region mm-hmm. of the country. And as soon as something happens, yep. you have to be the ones to go. Yep. Get on a plane, even if it's Christmas, mm-hmm. go gather your battalion and head over. And then we will figure out what needs to happen yep. once you get there. Because it's so it's so uncertain mm-hmm. and the risk is so high yep. and your family needs to be. Absolutely. And you know about those type of units. You were in them. And I was too. I grew up in 82nd, right? And that happened to me twice to a point I did not see Ava born, my youngest. I almost didn't see Jada born just because of the way we were separated initially, uh, my oldest. So absolutely. But uh, I, wa- I want to make sure that the audience understands that as you gather great people around you, if you're smart enough to do so, they are going to help you to see the gaps in your understanding and that's what people like you and others have done for me because my experiences was, was not that. It was not, let's make sure you are 100% okay before we ask you to take on this yeah. just Goliath of a lifestyle. Again, not a profession, but a lifestyle. Yeah. So. Now, you say profession. You say lifestyle. I grew up in the 90s. So, 1994 was when I came in the Army. So, mm-hmm. 94 to 99. And then you said it's different, a little bit different now. Let's mm-hmm. talk about a little bit of the differences. When I was growing up, very few people in my platoon were married. Mm-hmm. Maybe two. Yep. I was in a ranger platoon. Maybe two. So we all lived in the barracks. Mm-hmm. When I showed up to the 82nd as a second lieutenant, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure me and Carl Benander might have been the only married lieutenants mm-hmm. at the moment. So when I came in the Army, active duty in the early 2000s, or even in the, in the National Guard, 
uh, military families were getting paid, or military service members were getting paid way more than they were in the 80s or 90s. And so now they have the ability to have a family. And that's, I think that speaks to the support structure that people want and need. Yeah. Going back to what you said earlier is you have to make sure that support structure is taken care of because that's what we have said yeah. we want. So now they've put the money in place, which allows a support structure. So you as a leader need to make sure that support structure is taken care of before you start having them do all these things that we have you do in the yeah. military. Um, but I think it adds an aspect to leadership that maybe you didn't have to deal with in the 90s or see because it was just an individual in the barracks. You're like, hey, go do this. They had no responsibilities outside of doing whatever you told them. Yeah. Now I that had no responsibility. Exactly. That was it. Now that E5 or E6 has two children and a spouse, and you have to make sure that they're taken care of. How are you doing that in the in the readiness groups and the yes. family readiness groups? And the no. the things that I was being asked to do as Ranger team leader. Yeah. Um, are a lot different than what we're asking team leaders to do mm -hmm. with the technology that we have and the software that we have and the information that we have. Mm -hmm. We're expecting people nowadays, our junior NCOs to do things that are a lot more difficult than, than what I And not even military centric as people usually would think of it. It is public relations almost to yes. a point, right? Yes. And taking care of the families that are families of their subordinates. Yes. And we want to know as leaders, you know, what does that look like? And then we need to understand we have to do it ourselves Yes, for everyone when you're a squadron commander like you were, yes. soon to be brigade commander. You know, it's going to be a lot yeah. of families. But when we go back and we're doing the deed again like we did for 20 years, that structure better be strong because what we are going to be asked to do is going to be something we haven't done in a long time. I like how you said the structure and, and the foundation needs to be strong. What we're doing right now, although not in combat, is building that foundation with the with the young soldiers, with our junior officers, mm -hmm. not, not just with senior folks. It's with the junior folks. We're, mm -hmm. we're developing that foundation yeah. so that when that time comes, like it was for us when it was our first time deploying, we had a foundation to, to go off. You get to Fort Bragg, mm -hmm. right? This is your first duty assignment. At what point did you bring Kelly there? At what point did you get the family together? And what what's the next moment of transition for Chad in your development? What's that next big moment? So the next big moment was becoming a father. So Kelly was pregnant and we brought her out. I got there like Halloween of 2007. Um, luckily, I knew the division G3 Star Major and he helped me help transition me to... Command Sergeant Major Hacker, Frank Hacker. He's retired now in Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, one of my first mentors ever in the Army. Um, still keep up with him today. He works at MCTP at Fort Leavenworth now. So he helped me transition myself quickly. I actually lived with him for three months. Not every second lieutenant gets that option, you know, to be there with the He G3. was the Ops Sergeant Major at he the was, time? He was a G3 Ops Sergeant Major for the division. And you went into the G3? I did not. No. I went straight to a battalion who... Uh, the battalion commander, uh, Lieutenant Carl Richardson, was our neighbor when my dad was in at Fort Leavenworth. So I had a lot Get of familiar of people around me. Taking um, care of you. Yep, looking taking out, care of me. Looking out for you, similar to like Rick Brady right now yeah. with Rick Turner. Yep. You know, at 3rd Brigade, 101st. Mm -hmm. He's like, Rick, can you go check on go Brady? Go check on Brady. He's like, I'm a little bit busy. I'm a brigade commander. All right, then I'll ask Ezra Jones yeah. to go over there and say, hey, can you yeah. go check on Brady? And I didn't really understand it yet, but those relationships – were already paying dividends before I even got to my first duty station. Um, yes. And that 
Kelly came in like mid-November because she, at that point, was about 28 days from having Jada. And we needed to get her there fast. So just in case the baby came early or something like that. And so we got her there. And I actually had to leave again. I can't remember why. Uh, but I ended up getting back in time within an hour. And Jada was born. I was a daddy at 23 years old. So you can't even remember the exercise. I It wasn't an exercise. It wasn't JRTC. It, it wasn't, wasn't that. You um, weren't in combat. No. Um, I cannot the remember why. The point of why. this is the fact that. If you can't remember what the training exercise <laughs> that shows you how my lieutenant years was, <laughs> no. If you can't remember what the training exercise was that you were at that mm-hmm. got you to the point where you were almost an hour away from her having, deli- the, baby. having the baby, having Jada, F4 and you break. weren't there. But you probably thought that was the most significant training event in the history of the 82nd Airborne Division. Well, I, I, don't think it was a, I don't think it was a training event. That's the problem. I can't remember. I'm going to have to ask Kelly. Kelly keeps me straight on everything. You know that. The point is the transition is I was a daddy now. I had just got to this unit. It was in Iraq, the battalion. Um, so I was told I'm going forward. I'm getting shots, getting body armor and all this stuff. Jada just came. So now I'm like, I'm in my first unit. I'm going to war. Baby just came. I barely made the birth. Kelly's going to be here by herself. Luckily, I have family in North Carolina because that's where my fam- my mom and dad are from. Um, you know, an hour down the road in Raleigh-Durham. But that was a lot. And I ended up getting pulled off and not going on the deployment because they were coming back like three months later. But I had this, I had this new baby. And I'm like, well, I wasn't nervous about it, but I knew it was going to be a lot. And Kelly and I had made the decision up front that she was going to take care of the baby um, and not go to work. So financially now, it's like, okay, I'm living on just now first lieutenant pay. And what does that look like? I didn't know. It was just a bunch of stuff coming fast. And if I didn't have that support network from my family to the mentors that were there, um, things would have been that much more difficult. And again, speaks to how I have gotten to where I am now. And I will tell you just up front before we get in the conversation, um, I did not make it here alone. But in my, and that's what most people say. I didn't make it here at all without the people that are around me. And we can we can yeah. talk that later. Who who are who are some of the people that when when it when you had all those things happening at the same time, who mm-hmm. are some of the people that you had to lean on at that? Point? Oh shoot! Well, because I said my mom and dad are both from there, so my grandmother uh, and grandfather were there. Um, two grandmas. Grandfather, two grandfathers, all the, all the aunts and uncles, they're all in Raleigh, Durham, or Fayetteville area. Then Command Sergeant Major Hacker, Lieutenant Colonel Richardson at the time, retired colonel now. And then whatever friends we made there, a guy named Jason Smith. Um, uh, I think he's Space Force now. Uh, but they, they were great. They were neighbors that we met. And Mark Miller and his wife, Vanessa. And they became some of our first Army friends. And that's where I saw – that's why I say it's a lifestyle. Because – them helping take care of us was doing more than just taking care of the needs that we had in the home at the time. It was allowing me not to worry about that when what Kelly needed when I was still having to go to work and work 12 hours a day because it's the army and it's brag and you know what that's like. Yes. Um, so they were that lifestyle of how we take care of each other as a military family um, is why I, I hate saying the word profession because I think we need something else because of what we go through and what we're asked to do. That lifestyle is what allowed us to be successful. I think we struggle with, like, is it a profession? Is it what we do? Is it a family? 
you know, is it work? We mm-hmm. use different terms. People use different terms at different times. Yep. Um, we use family because it's the one thing that we all have in common. We all mm-hmm. know what a family, mm-hmm. we all know what a family is. Everybody knows what it means to say, I got to go to work, but it ain't like work. This is our mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time when you go to work, you get paid by the hour You yep. get in it and you show up, you clock in, you clock out, you go home at a certain time. And that's it. That is not the case for us. No. Sometimes when, when it needs to get done, there's not a time stamp. It's not 1700 that. time to go home. But when you come home, sir, I've, I've watched it when you were a squadron commander, maybe not as much while you're in school right now, but when you take command this summer, your lifestyle, your responsibilities, and you already know this, are not going to stop. You're going to come back here and there are going to be things going on and your second and third phone are going to be going off all the time. That does not happen typically. It doesn't end. And for those that, that have always asked me to share some of those things, I have always carried one phone. Everything <laughs> is forwarded to that one phone. Matt LeClaire will always be known 910-261-9399. Dang, that's smart. That will always be Matt LeClaire as mm-hmm. long as, as long as we have phone numbers and, and I get my phone number. I get my phone number. Everything gets forwarded to that phone number. Yeah. Everything gets forwarded to it. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously you get your secret phone and you can't put things. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get your secret stuff that can't be put on to those and you, and you got to check it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But I make it abundantly clear. This is how you get a hold of me. Like Prime says, I ain't hard to find. I learned something You know else how again. to find me. <laughs> you know how to find me. And, and you make it. The, the other thing is when you go to work, does Kelly know how to get a hold of you? She did it for a while, but she does now. She does now. <laughs> but they know how to get a hold of you yeah. in, in a case of an emergency. Mm-hmm. And the closest people that you work with, the closest people in your unit know how mm-hmm. to get a hold of you yes. at any moment. Yep. And it ain't just to say, I sent you an email. No, you know how to get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. You know how to get a hold of me if you need to. Yeah. This is the phone number. This is how you get a hold of me. And it's not separate. It's me. It's mm-hmm. This is my life. This is what I do. Yep. When you're in command, like when this is what... At any moment, you can get a hold of Matt LeClaire. Now, mm-hmm. if if I don't answer the text message, that's because me and Chad are recording a podcast right mm-hmm. now. But I will pick it up at my first opportunity and respond to all the people that, that needed to get a hold of me. Yeah. They knew how to get a hold of me. And this this isn't normal, like we just said. And like I'm going to take it back to what my dad said, what you wrote down, Chad. And he didn't just mean about you know, when it comes to combat. When you're in it, you're in it. And you got to be about it. 24-7. And I didn't understand it until, you know, probably a couple few years in. And I definitely don't have the same understanding of what I understood back then to now. It's such a huge transition over the last eight years. Uh, but the words that he said still ring true. I love it. Once you're in it, you're in it. Mm-hmm. Like marriage. Yep. Till death do us part. Yep. We, once you're in it, you're in it. Mm-hmm. And if you need to get a hold of me, you know how to get a hold of me. Yep, no matter yeah, what. If she calls, I'm going to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And if I have something that's super important that I need to focus on for a couple of hours, I tell her ahead of time, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to be doing something for a couple of hours and I'm going to be at it. She's yep. like, I can take care of myself. Yep. I'll be okay. You know, I, I made it through Fallujah mm-hmm. once <laughs> a week. We got to call once a week for 15 minutes at a time. That was it. This um, is a lifestyle. And we might be there again at some yep. point. Yep. If someone has to go somewhere in this world, in some island in the middle of nowhere, there ain't no cell network out there. Nope. And nope. unless you can work through some type of satellite or something like that to get home. And as soon as you do, everybody knows where you are. I'm about to say, yeah. Everybody knows where you are. 
Yep. So, so to think that things are couldn't go back or aren't going to go back, mm-hmm. they are going to go back to that. It is that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Something like that that we are not that we are not thinking about right now is going to happen, and and we're not going to be able to talk to families um, for a time. My first deployment to Fallujah, I thought we were going to go there and stay until we won. Mm-hmm. I thought that's what was going to happen because that's what when you watched Band of Brothers, they went to yeah. they de- they deployed. Oh yeah, and they said we're going to be there until till we win the war. I think some of those guys until like you two die, years. Yeah. Until or you get and new folks come out of basic and come out of mm-hmm. school and and show up to the unit, they reinforce the unit with that's new, why with new folks. What you said earlier, and you asked me a question about why is it important to have that structure here back at home, and why you sent that second lieutenant? Or are you telling me that I'm going to say that send him away or her away to make sure their structure is good because we may be gone for 18 months and we can't talk to you because in today's combat. Um, today's, today's warfare, they know where you are. That's right. So That's you right. better be strong back here. When we showed up, when me and Christy, Hunter and Brady showed up to Fort Bragg, um, on my first day, I went in and met, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Drinkwine mm-hmm. and, and Sergeant Major Brian Lambert. And they were standing there and they said, you're going to go to first platoon Alpha Company. Um, Lambert, he was my division Sergeant Major. Yeah, he was battalion CSM, Debo. Mm-hmm. He was standing there mm-hmm. with his arms crossed. The only thing he said to me was, you need to get rid of that field uniform, sir. <laughs> and when he said that, I was wearing like a fa- slightly faded set of BDUs because I didn't want to look like a brand new second lieutenant. Mm-hmm. I wanted to look like somebody that had been around the block for a couple mm-hmm. more than once. And they said, you're going to go to 1st Platoon Alpha Company and you're going to deploy on Thursday. Yeah. Go get your stuff. And I had Christy and Hunter and Brady were in the motel. Right mm-hmm. down the airborne inn, right down the street. Mm-hmm. I remember that. It was, and the carpet was muddy because it had just been shampooed. Oh. And Brady was crawling around, and he had mud on his knees. We didn't <laughs> even have a house. So now, what's the, what's the next transition? What's the next moment in Chad? Uh, Chad and Kelly, Jada. Now you're at Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple. Mm-hmm. What I'm gonna say first is the deployments. So no notice deployments. One to Haiti. 2010, when there was the earthquake, we I was in the field. They came over the radio and said, hey, come back to the company. We were locked down. Uh, we were given weapons and ammunition once we got the green ramp. And we deployed. We had nowhere, no idea where we were going. And we found out on a plane. Did the mission in Haiti. Got to see some of the most um, disturbing events I've ever seen in my life. Um, with how many were dead, um, the gangs vying for power, the firefights that are going on between them, us having to provide security and food and comfort all at the same time, living in a, in a, just a, a devastated high school that had no, no doors, no windows, nothing. Fast forward three and a half months, came back home. Eight days later, we were gone on an aircraft again to Afghanistan. President Obama wanted to surge Afghanistan, and we were that battalion that literally just got back a week ago. Which battalion were you in? First 325, 2nd Brigade, um, Red Falcons. So we're in Afghanistan now, but now we're doing the deed. And that was the first realization of I might die. And Kelly was pregnant with Ava, our youngest, at the time. I did not have to leave, but I had to explain to my young wife that I could not let my platoon go to combat without me. 
And not, I, I'm not going to take that liberty that they offered uh, just because you were pregnant. And that was a hard discussion. There was a lot of tears. Uh, but she said, you know what? I understand. And I deployed. Just like anybody else, there were a couple times where my life could have ended. It did not. God had more for me. Where were you in uh, Afghanistan? I was in Kanduz, up in the north where it kind of originated or yes. where it started. Yes. Um, and so God protected me through all of that. But that was a realization of I may never meet my youngest. And that, that was a... Uh, Oh, sorry. <clears throat> that that was a hard realization. Um, but God uh, brought me through it, and uh, I redeployed. Uh, came back to Green Ramp, and uh, Kelly was there with her mom, Jada, and uh, my new 11-day-old 11 11 um, baby. Um, I, didn't know, I didn't know you were still in Afghanistan when Ava was born. Yep. Um, and so that actually... Um, furthered my strength in God in Jesus Christ. Um, because there was a lot of praying going on, especially after a couple of things that had happened. So I, I, the transition was a stronger faith, um, a stronger marriage, to be honest with you. Um, a better realization of what God has blessed me with up until that point. And I still had some ways, I still had a ways to go in maturity in my mind, not only with my faith in God, but you know, the way I carried myself as an individual. And, but that was a large stepping stone for me. When you were in Afghanistan and you don't, you don't have to get into too many of them, like, or just, just, just pick one. Like we, we, people like us know when you say, I went over there and there was opportunities where it, it might have, it could have mm -hmm. gone one way or the other and it would have been bad. Yeah. But here's the deal, Chad, 99% of, of people. Mm -hmm. Don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. One percent of us know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Ninety-nine percent of the people that are either going to a listen mm -hmm. or what they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. When when you say there was a moment where things could have went south. Yeah. Really quickly, mm -hmm. or you saw it happen to to somebody you cared about. One yeah. of your sergeants, one of your soldiers, somebody in the company. Mm -hmm. We've been through that. Yeah. Most people haven't. So. Up front, I, I started to think about it flying over to Hindu Kush, uh, going into Afghanistan and thinking, man, this might be my last plane ride. So that, that started it. Um, it's actually three things, but I can get through them quickly. The first was we lost four people in about, I think it was three days. Same route, same tactics. It's a whole nother conversation of my irritation. I was not attached to the 10th Mountain Unit that I was living at the cop with. Um, I was doing a different type of mission, um, but I was there. And this platoon went out, took multiple IEDs, flipped an RG-33 over, cut one of their their gunner in half, but he was alive because it had cauterized half his body. So he was fighting for his life while the platoon leader uh, and her soldiers got out, they were engineers from Fort Bragg, Firing back on both sides of the road because they were almost surrounded in a 360. I'm watching it on Predator feed. And all you can see is like Black Hawk Down, the movie. You're just watching these things come in at them. RPGs, machine guns, everything else. I go to battalion commander, um, who, again, I'm not attached to. 
my boss was 12 hours away and said, hey, I'm ready to go. I got four uh, Matt Bs ready to go. Fit, 250 cows, two 240s, AT4s, grenades, everything else. Let's, I, I will go down there. We're going to wreak hell on these individuals. He wouldn't let me go. Being older now, I understand why he did it. But we watched them die. So we had the funeral, and uh, you can imagine that. So taps and everything else, that's a hard thing to listen yeah. to. Um, second was we were going out to do a KLE. Typically, you go all the way out to your furthest point, and you come back. You don't stop, go, stop, go, hit your furthest point, and yes. then come back because people can set up on you, right? Yes. If you go to the furthest point, they have no idea where you're going. They don't know where you're stopping either. So, they don't know where you're stopping. Um, so, I tried to explain this to the 06, German 06, who was in charge of the convoy. And he and I got into a pissing match. I'm a captain, by the way. I probably should have had a little more decorum than I did. But I was like, look, we just lost four people. Not trying to lose some more of my men or anything else. I lost that fight. So, we were going to make a stop and then go to a second stop and uh -huh. then come back. And I didn't like it. They put me in the front because with the Belgians and the Germans in a vehicle that couldn't have more armor than maybe a quarter of an inch loaded with munitions, AT4 equivalents, laws, if you remember what a law was, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, grenades, you know, ammunition. And we stop at the first stop. The Germans get a little anxious and after about three minutes decide to go around our little convoy, even though they're part of our convoy, they get to maybe 300 meters down the road and they take an ID. The first vehicle. Machine gun fire starts to come in. The enemy starts to bring in about 60, 70 guys and flank us. So I get the guys up into a building and we start to look out in full security and we can't see where the machine gun fire is coming from. It's not hitting on, beating on us, but it's beating on the guys that they were, unfortunately, two of them were, were significantly hurt from it. Long story short is we were going to pick back up and keep moving to the second and last point. I was the first vehicle. That should have, that would have been me in a vehicle that was nowhere near as armored as the vehicle that mm -hmm. took the strike. Mm -hmm. We all would have died. Yeah. And so immediately I'm thanking God. For what he did, if I would have won that argument, and we would have went to that yeah. that that last spot, I would have died, and I never would have met my daughter, yeah. and would have left my wife and Jada. So um, the last thing is, I had Conduce was ran by the local warlord who was very powerful. Lo and behold, he had a contractor that was uh, providing us oil for our generators to try to get me to come into Conduce City, and I knew something was up because. Uh, they were calling me at like two in the morning, like, Hey, we need to have a meeting. I'm like, I'm not going to Conduit City by myself, my little platoon, uh, to meet you. We can meet tomorrow. The guy called me three times in about four hour stint and he was frantic, more frantic each time. Finally, he got captured. I found this out later and shot in the chest. Um, and he hadn't died yet, but his, his brother gave himself up to the warlord. So his brother, his brother just got shot, the contractor could go to a hospital and get treatment. They were trying to get me down there because they saw me as, you know, worth multi millions worth of dollars and can't get into why, but technically I guess I was in their mind. So they wanted to capture me, torture and everything else to try to get money. They should know that the U S government wasn't going to pay that. Uh, but the, the S two got involved, the G two and figured out that's what was happening. They called me and like apologizing 
that they didn't have more information flowing to me because we didn't have much. Again, we weren't attached. We were just living on this cop. Um, so God saved me again. Because I could have been stupid and like, yeah, I'll meet you. I'm, I'm not scared. I'm not worried about it. And that would have been a bad deal. Yeah. Um, so those three things right there strengthened not only my faith, but gave me a little more tactical prowess uh, and helped me to appreciate, realize, and be thankful for the people that do this thing every single day. Uh, that's the left and right of you and me, uh, because some yeah. of us don't get to make it back. Perseverance. You, you've already you've already talked so much about perseverance and 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 such. But like, what after after that, you're still at Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. What's the next like turning point in Chad's career? So there's only one more point, and I never go back to Fort Bragg or any other place than Hawaii. Um, I had always wanted to be a special forces soldier. Um, since I met one when I was 15, um, he was actually one of the, the leaders there in Afghanistan after 9-11. Um, he constructed Tora Bora and led everything that happened there. He was in CGSC at the time and then went to SAMS afterwards. So I always wanted to be a SF soldier, so I put in for selection. Got picked up, um, went to selection, passed it, um, got put into the pipeline. I went to uh, Fort Moore now, it was Fort Benning, did the Camps career course. And uh, came back to uh, Fort Bragg and uh, started the queue. And I was in the queue for a year. And uh, Chad, as a captain, is very different than Chad as a lieutenant colonel today. I had a, a disagreement with a NCO who, long story short, ended up getting fired because of the situation that happened between he and I and his um, lack of understanding of doctrine. I was in small unit tactics, got a no-go. I voiced my concern to the SAR major of small unit tactics, that phase of the Q course. He saw it my way and he allowed me to continue. What I didn't understand was the bureaucracy and the, the NCOs led everything in the Q course and my name was tarnished at that point. I could have probably just continued and uh, did the recycle and no issue, no, no harm, no foul. Captain Taylor wanted to make his voice known and that put the nail in the coffin for my SF career. So I uh, was offered a recycle, but I knew that I probably wouldn't make it because of my name at that time or my, at that point. So I called in a favor from my captain's career course. Now Lieutenant Colonel, soon to be Colonel Bithorn, was a cab, uh, cab squadron mm-hmm. commander as well. Mm-hmm. He's at the War College now. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got me to Hawaii. Colonel Mackey was a second brigade commander. And uh, he brought me in, didn't know me from anyone. But uh, Beth Warren said, hey, this is the guy you want. And I have not left this island, my CGSC and Sam's, <laughs> since 2013. Um, and that was our my final transition to the conventional army. And uh, that's a whole other story. Now you're out in Hawaii for the mm-hmm. first time. First time. And you're here. You said – you know they they took you under your wing. I know you go to CGSC. I know you 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 know you've been to Sam's. Those of us that know you know you're a lot smarter than everybody. <laughs> yeah, and right. then you ever try to play it off. And there's a lot of things that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, in the years of company command to to command general staff college. Yep. You know that's a long period of time. It is. But like, what what was it that happened during that long period of time that 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 impacted? Your career, where you at what point did you say, "This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life"? Yeah. Um, so this is definitely the time frame in which that occurred. So my my whole world was broken once I left the Q course. I thought I was going to like pull the 
steering wheel out of my brand new F-150 as many times as I punched that thing when I decided to voluntarily drop from the Q course. Because that was my whole mental framework was I was going to be a Green Beret Special Forces soldier. I thought that's where God was leading me. But what I figured out was he was teaching me some things about myself. Once One of the things was humbleness. I thought I was better than I was. I thought charisma and physical fitness would get you through the army. And not understanding, even though I say it's not a profession, you are a professional when it comes to if you take on the mantra of professional for leader, that's what we are. We You have to become a student of war and a student of leadership. Those are the things you must do to continue in the army, in my opinion, uh, to be effective. Not saying there aren't people that don't promote to 05 and above that aren't those things, but if you want to be effective, you have to be a professional leadership in, in uh, combat. Um, so I come here to Hawaii and I get offered a command six months after getting here. I come in with a good name. And so I think everything's going to be great. I meet, and I will say his name because we are, we are friends today. Uh, and we've gotten over our issues, which I'll talk about. But, uh, I meet a Lieutenant Colonel Ike Salee, who was the, uh, 114 infantry commander. And Lieutenant Colonel Salee was well on his way. He had just finished being Joe Biden's aide as, uh, when he was the vice president. Um, the guy's walking on water and he's wickedly smart. Uh, West Point grad, all of the things. I come in with like sleeves rolled up. You know, I've still got the SF stink on me because I was in a Q course. I almost made it, you know, half my tabs on my arm, that type of attitude. And he crushes me. I mean, just. Every way that you can imagine, any of you leaders After out there. After you took command? Like you, you got put in command and then. I hadn't even taken command yet. I just oh, knew so I was going down the, there. You knew the battalion. I knew the battalion I was going. Uh, I go down to see him out in the field. And I remember I saluted him and I dropped the salute before he did. That was an hour long conversation. I just leave it at that. You know, <laughs> yeah, don't drop the salute before the senior does. Right. So just things like that. I was not. Where I needed to be as a mid-level 03. Then I finally get put into command. And I'm in a company that has wrought with quite a few issues. Bad apples to no systems to all these types of things. Remember I told you I cared about physical fitness, small unit tactics, killing the enemy you know, in the, in the jungles or wherever the heck I was going. Um, that's all I cared about. And you'd been to combat – I had been to combat once, but I went to Haiti where there was some aspect to it. So you'd been deployed twice. Twice. So I thought I knew something, yeah. um, but I didn't. And organizational leadership and organizational development and organizational management weren't even in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what that was. And boy, did I find that out for 12 months because <laughs> I just got destroyed by a man that is walks on water, like I said. Um, and I had to learn how to communicate with your boss, how to, um, get in front of problems, how to not be the nice guy, which I tried to be up front and be everybody's friend, kind of the SF thing, like, Hey brother, what's up? You know, uh, just very different culture back into a regular infantry unit. And to be honest, the company ran me over 
I didn't understand systems, so I didn't know how to get paperwork and admin done. I didn't understand how to get people through UCMJ. I didn't understand maintenance. I didn't understand training. I didn't understand anything. I remember sitting at that desk when I took command and looking at the wall, and I sat there for about an hour and a half. And I didn't know the first thing to do. And that was terrifying. And I was like, well, you know, I've been able to work my way through everything else. This is no big deal. I'll pray about it. I'll be good. I wasn't. And so long story short, I end up being told probably seven months into command that I would not make major by Lieutenant Colonel Ixley, sat down on his couch and he said, look, this evaluation and any subsequent here in this division is probably not going to allow you to promote, especially since you're in the Q course for two and a half years. You don't have any evaluations. And the one evaluation I got at brigade here before going down to command for six months was it complete the record because they were cutting people out of the army at the time. Mm-hmm. Obama was yes. shrinking the army. So little did I know was I was sequestration. Go- those that, that, at that time? It was the officer separation boards um, yeah. to reduce the army. And I got a HQ because I've been there six months evaluation out of brigade. Hadn't had an evaluation three years before and then was sucking it up as a company commander. Promoting 04 was not going to happen. So that was the next transition of fear of what am I going to do? No master's degree. I don't have any skills, really. I'm going to get thrown out of the army. I have two children. I've been married for about seven years and I'm living in a house. There's no way I could even, I could buy it living in Hawaii. I think it was almost $700,000 at the time. And I start calling, texting, emailing people in Kansas City saying, hey, I'm going to need a job in about the next 18 months. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? We think you're a G.I. Joe. Like, yeah, I did too. And I'm, I'm getting my ass handed to me. And so I, over that eight to nine month span in 114, I lost about 25 to 30 pounds. I did not eat. I dipped tobacco. I drank a bottle to a bottle and a half of wine every night to the point Kelly is like, look, because wine's my thing. You know that. Kelly's like, look, you're, you got a problem. And so I had to learn about how do you take care of yourself in a, in a healthy way? How do you manage stress as well as transition potentially out of the army? Something that was paying me well, um, taking care of my family in a beautiful place like Hawaii. And I'm going to have to move back home. And in shame. So we get through month nine. I have that conversation with Carl Salee. And he said, look, man, you got maybe one more chance to be able to go forward. What do you want to be known for? I still remember that question. I love that. I love that what do you want to be known for? He's like, because as you continue through this bureaucratic army, not only do you have to be able to do your job very well, and they expect that, especially as you climb. He was like, but you have to be known going forward. And he's talking about the bureaucratic system that the army is, the largest in the United States of America. And I didn't understand that either. And I just told him, you know, I would be known as a good dude. He's like, no. When it comes to what you're doing in your job currently, what do you think you could do well at? I was like, well, I like to lead. And he kind of drove me towards systems. He drove me towards organizational leadership. He drove me towards organizational development. And he's like, those are systems. What does that look like? And he didn't give me the answer. He just gave me the topic. And so I took that and I went to peers that were doing very well. 
I went to subordinates even, and I went to some seniors, um, like Bithorn, uh, that helped me to understand what he was saying. And from that day forth in 114, Charlie Company, uh, who I was a commander of, I started research and study about systems, about organizational development, about organizational leadership, organizational management. And I created a system with trusted agents in the company to make a system for administrative means and for training. Didn't really know what I was doing, but using those that I trusted to my left and right, those became systems over time that other companies began to use. We had a soldier, unfortunately, take his own life after we finished a uh, NTC rotation. And I still took the company out to the field three or four days later. And we put on one of the best training events. That's my brigade commander's uh, words, um, who is now two-star um, Major General Womack uh, in Japan. And he saw something in me. So he gave me a second command that I asked for. I didn't think it would happen. I just threw it out there. Told Colonel Slay, hey, sir, I'd love to take a second command because I knew that's probably what I needed to do to save my career. And man, did it happen. And I took HHC 121 and Gimlets and kept going. And uh, those systems followed me. And I was like, you know what? I need to know more about this. And it allowed me to step back because I had some money in the bank now to look at how do I view leadership? How do I view training? How do I view this lifestyle? That we're in. And that evaluation came out very, very well. So did the one in 114. And lo and behold, I'm going to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas now to go work for the School of Advanced Military Studies, which I ended up being their operations officer for. And uh, ended up then going to CGSE and School of Advanced Military Studies as a student. And we spent three and a half years there at Leavenworth and came right back here as a field grade. So, without getting into the time at Sam's and the um, and skipping forward to like the CGSC, when Ike Sully told you that, like, hey, this is probably not going to work out well for you, and you should start thinking about other things to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. again not necessarily were those his words, but that was the feeling you had. This is the point where networks, mentors, coaches. People that you have trusted, mm-hmm. and you said it started with Kelly. She mm-hmm. was the first one that says, "Hey, something needs to change." Yep. This is where go go into like who were those people that you could call on a Saturday and say things aren't going good right now, and I need to make some changes. And you could count on that network. Talk about how having a support system and mm-hmm. people and mentors and coaches that you could go to mm-hmm. when things were getting tough. Absolutely. I think I think they're bifurcated. They're in two separate categories. You I had my family who is very tight on either my mom or father's side that I could call. And most of them are civilian, like pretty much all of them. So they would support me and hey, we're going to help you out with anything you need. We're praying for you, this and that. And that was great, and I was very thankful for it, but my military network was not very large at the time. I had a a man by the name of Ryan Baum, who was a company commander with me, absolutely phenomenal officer who could be a GO, in my opinion, uh, engineer, and he's working for USACE right now. He would call me to see if I was okay. 
because Carl Salib would beat me up every single week at the company training meetings or the battalion training meetings or any other meeting. Um, so he became not only a mentor, but you know, he was a very good friend of mine. Uh, Dan Stennett or Dan Apsley now is his name, uh, who's in Alaska now. Uh, same thing. I could go and I could talk to him, another peer, company commander, Bravo Company, and just vent, have a bourbon in his office and vent. Ryan Baum specifically was the one that helped me to better understand how he conducted himself as a company commander through systems and how he engaged with his subordinates. He was just, he was years in front of me with his understanding. Why? I don't, I don't know. He just was. Um, so he was the one that really helped me to, to understand how to move forward practically as a, as a captain in the army and how to do your, your job correctly. Now, outside of that, my mentor, my mentors that, that were majors and lieutenant colonels or above, I didn't really have any. Little did I know my battalion commander, Colonel Salee, Lieutenant Colonel Salee, even though I couldn't stand him initially, ended up becoming a mentor. And towards the end of my company command, he would allow me to come in his office and talk to him about anything mm. for an hour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He would talk, even though I thought he was one of the most stuck up, egotistical, whatever people. He, I think he sensed that and he allowed me to be honest with him, even the way I felt about him. And when he did that, somehow our relationship changed because he knew that I cared about my organization. He knew I cared about his organization. Yeah. And so he then started to allow me to address the problems in my life at that point, personally or professionally. So he started to become one of those mentors that I didn't have. Yeah, there was uh, some kind of switch that he saw in you. Yes. That saw that you were when mm -hmm. he put the pressure on you, mm -hmm. when he put it on, that that switch w had been flipped. Yeah. And he said, "This guy cares. Yep. This guy sees it differently, mm -hmm. and he's worth investing in." Yeah, and he said he said it. He said it today. He's a retired O six, worked for Amazon, does very well. And I talked to him probably a couple months ago, and he said, "Chad, it didn't matter what went on; you never broke, and that's rare." And I think that's what it was. I didn't know that was going on, but he said that I, I am the most resilient person that he worked with um, at that level. And one of the most resilient he had seen in, in the military. See, so, when you become, and I believe when you become a battalion commander, mm -hmm. being a battalion commander, you are more prepared than any position you have ever done yeah. in the military. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, when you see a lieutenant and they and you speak to them for twenty minutes, mm -hmm. you will instantly know. Yeah, yeah. This there's something special about this person. Mm -hmm. Other folks, you will instantly know he's in it for all the wrong reasons. She's not. She's missing it in this area, mm -hmm. and you can help that person. Yeah, because all of your years or experience, your intuition, it becomes instinct at that point. Mm -hmm. It's those things are so in you. Oh, yeah. And that's why Ixley saw it. Mm -hmm. And you think, I don't know where he saw it. I don't know what it was about me. He saw it instantly in mm -hmm. you. And you're going to see the same thing when you become a battalion commander. You're going to see that. That people notice something in you. Mm -hmm. And that's the experience. That's why we trust people with mm -hmm. years of experience. That's why we ask lieutenant colonels mm -hmm. to tell us, 
who's who's the best first sergeant and company commander you got? Yep. Who's the best lieutenants that should be captains? Who are your sergeants that should be staff sergeants and sergeant first classes? Mm-hmm. And they go, that's how fast they ask you and the sergeant major. Yep. And they just just tell us who it is. We trust you. Mm-hmm. Because if you tell us they're not, they don't have what it takes, that's it. That's all I need to know. Uh, your experience in this institution, I trust you. Absolutely. And what I would tell you, tell you in the, the audience is it's not just about how I, you know, and I'll, I'll finish this question that you gave me up here in a second. Um, it wasn't just about gaining um, mentors, whether peers, subordinates maybe, or even seniors. It was I learned about the entire process itself of take your emotion out of the situation if you can do it. It may be a terrible situation you're in or you think it's terrible like I did because I thought my career was ending, uh, which to be honest, it was. And I was able to understand that I was not as good as I thought I was. Colonel Salee was trying to point that out, even as harsh as it may have been at times. And I didn't burn the bridge with him because I was upset. I I tried to keep a, a demeanor about myself that allowed the relationship to continue, which ultimately from 2013 when it started to 2023 now, he went from guy I couldn't stand to a guy I started to understand to a mentor to a friend that I actually have flown out with Kelly to go see him in Colorado when he was a brigade commander. So that's what I would tell people is unless someone's character is completely flawed and so you don't want to be around them because you know, I can understand you don't want to be around flawed character. Give the people in your life a chance when it comes to the leaders and try to see their point of view and be candid with them in a conversation so you can get on the same page. And I did that with Colonel Salee once at a Christmas party at his house. And I told him how I felt and what I believe I was trying to do and that I was trying to help his organization and my own and trying to grow. And it changed instantly that day. Your relationship, relationship with him changed. Completely changed. Overnight. overnight. Yes. And he allowed me to talk to him in a way that some people may think was disrespectful, but I was just being honest with him and he didn't take it that way. And he became a mentor and friend plus his wife, Ediana, from here on out, that I still talk to today. That let's let's keep going on this. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're gonna keep going on this on this topic. Because what what you got me thinking about is if you you could have very easily said Colonel Salee is toxic. Mm-hmm. Colonel Salee is doesn't care about mm-hmm. soldiers. Colonel Salee, like you could have said that. Yep. But you didn't. Nope. Right? There are a lot of people right now today that are being held accountable, Mm -hmm. that are being told they're not cutting it, that they're told that you're struggling right now. You're missing the mark. Mm -hmm. I need you to do better. Right? All the things that he told you, because I've had those leaders too, Mm -hmm. that were hard on me. Yeah. And now we have a really good relationship later on. But other folks have said that person's toxic. And that mm-hmm. person doesn't treat people with dignity and respect. Yeah. I, I think you um, – I would say that there were times with things he said or did that could definitely on a scale be seen as toxic. What I'm telling the people that are listening today is 
Go have a con- candid conversation with, I don't care if it's your Raider or your senior Raider, whoever, in a professional, empathetic, personal way to say, sir, ma'am, this is what I'm thinking. This is how I viewed what you've said over time. This is where I'm trying to go. I want to do the best I can for our organization as a team. And if you structure it that way, it will bring their guard down. And that's what I had to do with him. And probably I was able to do that because I believed everything was gone anyway. I had lost everything. I was getting thrown out of the Army. I didn't think I was going to yeah, be able to go forward. I had nothing forward. to lose. I had nothing to lose. So not everyone's going to be in that situation. I got it. You could be doing yeah. well. Whoever's listening out there could be doing extremely well. And like, I'm not going to do that. But I promise you at some point you're going to run into this situation and you have to be a just a human being and know that you're dealing with a human being and you need to come together and you could do it by being honest with them in a professional and empathetic and personal way. And I bet you the outcome would be better than you think it was for me. Yeah. Now, I want to speak on behalf of the battalion commander that's out there or the yeah. company commander, mm-hmm. right? Because right now there's a lot of folks that are afraid to hold people accountable mm-hmm. because they feel like they're going to be they're going to be looked at as being toxic. Yes, I think you have to do what Colonel Salee did. You have to say you're you have to hold people accountable. Yes, in a professional way. Yep. You have to say, hey, look, Chad, I think you could be doing way better with your systems. Absolutely. I think you're not as good as you think you are. Yep. Like, and and it that can't be the first thing that comes out of your mouth the first time you ever meet. Mm-hmm. But when you develop a relationship with somebody as their commander, mm-hmm. you owe it to those people yes. to tell them that yep. you're you're struggling in this area. Yep. You have to be honest with people and and you have to develop a relationship with them through counseling so that you have a relationship now. Mm-hmm. Like if 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 and when you tell them that, they don't come back and say, Colonel Leclerc's being toxic. Yep. He just told me I don't I'm not doing a good job. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you, sir, not just counseling. One thing, Colonel Salee, that sticks with me today is he said, Chad, I'm not worried about giving you this stuff on a piece of paper. Because I asked him, hey, sir, are we going to do counseling? He's like, I counsel you every day. He was like, but I have a relationship with you every day. Yes. He was like, do you know what I want? And at that point in time, when he asked me that, I understood what he wanted. I was like, yes, sir, I do. He was like, then go do it. Do you need me to sit down with you for 30 minutes on Mm -hmm. on a scheduled block on my calendar? That's right. And I was like, man, yeah, he does. He engages all the time. Well, oh, counseling, counseling, we say counseling, we say sit down on the couch for, for 30 yes. minutes. No, mentorship, coaching, yes. counseling is happening all the time. Yes. It's happening in your demonstration. Mm-hmm. It's happening when they see you in PT. It's happening when you have a conversation in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. That is the mentorship. That's the coaching. Yes. That's the teaching. Absolutely. That's the counseling. Yeah. And one thing I knew was right and I tried to do, but he reinforced it. And he did this probably four years ago. He, he sat me down. We were having a bourbon. It was just me and him. And I won't get into the situation, but there was something I went and died on my sword for as a company commander for a soldier. And Colonel Slee was very upset about it. And we had some words, some very loud ones. Six years later, he said, I'm sorry, you were right. Now, was he a battalion commander anymore? Um, No, he was a brigade commander and he came back and said, I'm sorry. He taught me that the humbleness as the leader 
can advance that relationship and build that trust we always talk about uh, almost more than anything else because that person, your subordinate, sees that you're a person, but you're a person that values them because you're willing to say, you know what, I may be your boss, but I was wrong. Yeah. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And he reinforced that for me, and I've tried to and do that. And how did you feel forward. about him after he after he apologized, after he reinforced that, and said I couldn't do better? How did you feel about him after that? I mean, we were already at a good place, but it it upped our relationship even more. That he knew it at the time, but he developed himself. You got to remember, you're dealing with humans. Mm-hmm. Like as much as I screwed up as a company commander, you easily could have fired. I would have fired myself. As Lieutenant Colonel Taylor, now I would have fired Captain Taylor. I would have fired him. Well, guess what? You're going <laughs> to so, be you're going to be in position here pretty soon, and you're going to have a Captain Taylor, and he's going to be struggling with systems and all those things. He's mm-hmm. going to think he's better than than he thinks he is, mm-hmm. and and you're going to have all these years of experience to decide what do you do. Yeah, what exactly. Do do so that's uh, to your original question. I'll wrap it up because uh, I know we're going kind of long, but my my mentors or my network, the the place that it really expounded um, and kind of blew up for me was at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas in CGSC. A lieutenant colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Benita Ham, uh, I just call her Ham, uh, or B, excuse me. She is a phenomenal uh, personnel officer. And she made me sit down, write an email to a three-star general who I did not know with OERs, ORB, what my background is, and let him know that uh, um, I knew her and I was looking for a mentor. I was like, there's no daggone way I'm doing this. What are you talking about? She was like my work wife. I told Kelly about her. She made me sit in that seat and do it. I didn't have a choice. I sent that (laughs) thing out and it exploded. And I won't use the GO's names, but it went to a plethora of GO's that are are soon to be four-star, three-star, two-star, and colonels. And I started to see the linkages of all these different people and your name gets floated to people that you don't even know are talking about you. So what I learned from that is do very well in your, in your position, because that's what you are expected to do and you should do for your subordinates. Connect with as many people as you can. Talk to them about subsequent stuff, you know, or a subset of stuff, things, topics. It's not just about you. It's about... It's about how you help others. It's about what's going on in their life um, and build a relationship. And that has allowed me to stay in this beautiful state of Hawaii uh, in an AOR that I am very, very interested in um, and meet phenomenal people. And at times when other subordinates I have had needed help, I have reached out to these people and they have changed, changed the course of these other soldiers' careers and lives because of that one email that Lieutenant Colonel Ham made me send. So I can't stress enough relationships, genuine relationships, not you just looking for someone to put you somewhere, but to better help you understand the gaps that are out in front of you, understand stuff personally and professionally. And that will just continue to grow as people see you as a genuine person that's not looking to just further yourself. Uh, and then be a good dude, good dude at, and know your job and God will take care of the rest from there. When it comes to mentors, we, we think of these people as gods. We think of these people yeah. as like untouchable, like there's no way you can reach out to them. 
But if you were to reach out to Matt LeClaire, I would do anything for you. Hmm. You know that. Yes, sir. And if you sent me a text message or any of our people sent me a text message that they know, I would stop what I'm doing. I would respond to the to the text message. Mm-hmm. I, I I got I'll make time for a phone call because I'm a normal person. I was in their their shoes. Mm-hmm. That's the way the our senior leaders are. Yeah, they are the same way. And I think a lot of people know that because they're too scared to reach out to them. Like I was. They want to help you yep. out. Absolutely. They want to share. They want to give back. Mm-hmm. They want to give back what they learned in their 30 years. Oh yeah. Yep. And and. And sometimes it's the folks that are in between them that mm-hmm. get in the way. Yes. They say, hey, Chad, will you get this to Colonel LeClaire? No, why don't you just text him yourself? Mm-hmm. No, j- here's his phone number, mm-hmm. 910-261-9399. Everybody knows what it is. Mm-hmm. I ain't hard to find. Yeah. Like, send me a note. Tell me I'm not doing a good job. Tell me tell me what I can do to help. And yeah. I'll be honest if I can't if I can't help out right now. And I think we have to do that. We got to tell people that. Yeah. And I've I've talked to quite a few GOs that say I I give my number out, I give my contact information, but nobody will contact me. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, there's a fear there, or people are worried about, oh, well, you're brown nosing, or you're this, or you're that. I can tell you, I thought that initially, but man, the the pitfalls or the the minds that were out in front of me that I didn't know that these geos and colonels allowed me and helped me to see saved me from a plethora of pain yeah. through the this career and you can even help them out sometimes they'll ask you questions uh so yeah that's that well, they'll is ask my you the right questions and and I think a lot of people are worried about perfection mm-hmm. and they they say if I'm going to send an email to to somebody it has to be perfect yeah and so it'll never be perfect. Nope. If I have to send the text, it's going to be, it's got to be just right. I got to know exactly what to say mm-hmm. and the right question at the right time. It'll never be the right time. It'll never be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And my example was Lieutenant Colonel Votel changed my life. Mm-hmm. He was the battalion commander of 175. And he, he was my O here. Him, uh, I was carrying a manila folder and, um, I was delivering stuff to the battalion headquarters. I was a training NCO of Charlie Company 175. And I and I, I asked Miss Sheila Dudley. She changed my life first. And I said, Sheila, I'm trying to do this thing called a letter of recommendation for mm-hmm. the battalion commander. How does this work? Mm-hmm. And she said, What are you trying to do? And I said, I'm trying to go green. I'm thinking about going green to gold. Mm-hmm. I need to get a letter of recommendation with the battalion commander. And she says, Come with me. Mm-hmm. I go, Ma'am. And she goes and walks me into Lieutenant Colonel Votel, battalion commander's office. She says, Sit down on this couch, sir. This is a sergeant that wants to go green and gold. You need to talk to this guy about becoming an officer. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and we sat down and he said, Matt, why do you want to be an officer? And I go, sure, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure I do. I just know I, I like being in the Army mm-hmm. and, I, and, 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 I, and I like the, this team and, and I might want to do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, said, he said, Matt, do you want to take other people's plans and other people's policies and make them happen to perfection? Or do you want to write the policies and do you want to write the plans? Mm-hmm. Then you need to become an officer. And I said, sir, I, I want to write the policies. I want to write the plans because then you need to go create a gold and be an officer. And I'm going to help. That's you. awesome. I'm going to help you. And it starts with going and writing your letter of recommendation. Go write it. That's and awesome. I went, what? And he's like, go, go write your stuff. And write what it's supposed to say, and I'll mm-hmm. help coach you through. Changed my life. Man, now soon to be brigade commander, Colonel Matt LeClaire. 
<laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Change, change my life forever. You started to get into why you stayed when you said, when you were a company commander, you started talking about Ixley, mm-hmm. you started talking about um, those folks and you said, that was the moment where you said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Yes. Um, I guess I just talked about the the painful part. Once my career continued, I went to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, what I realized from company command, when I told you I was sitting at that desk and I did not know what I was doing, I told myself I de- never wanted to feel that again. So as I thought about CGSC, I had worked for SAMS. That is not something that Chad Taylor would do because I am not an intelligent person. I'm not an academic. And, and it just seemed way outside of my scope. But I got to see the benefit of what you learned there. And I went back and forth for about eight months about applying. I didn't think I'd get in because I saw the people that were getting in and what their resumes looked like. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> there's no way. Um, and I talked to my father who is, like I said, he, he is my biggest cheerleader, biggest mentor in my life. Um, and he said, why not? Why why not apply um, so that you don't feel the way that you did? This is, a, this is one way the Army will pay for something, a degree for you to better understand what you're doing going forward. And as I thought about my great-grandfather who had to use one very kind white man in the South that would sell him land because nobody else would, um, he, the, 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 the gentleman would buy the land and then sell it to my black Southern Indian father or grandfather, great grandfather. Um, I thought about all the, the pain and, and limited access that he had. I was like, how in the world could I not apply for this when all I'm going to be doing is reading books in an air conditioned building and writing? He fought for these types of things. He went through what he went through, uh, for, you know, people like me, um, to have these opportunities. So I put, long story short, I put in for it. I was accepted and that school changed my perspective on global occurrences, geopolitics, tactics, operational to strategic level thinking. And when I came back here to um, Hawaii, I w- uh, relationships again, uh, to come here as a uh, planner for 25th ID, it put me in a, in my opinion, it put me in a different category when it came to planning, creating dedu- or identifying deductions, risk, and the ability to brief to senior leaders. And I was the most comfortable I had ever been in the Army. That's when I knew, you know what? I'm not going to leave until the Army is messaging, hey, um, we appreciate your service, but uh, your road's ending. At that point, I'll get out when it makes the most sense. And that's when I knew that as long as they give me opportunity to keep advancing, I was going to stay as long as they allowed. Yeah. You, when you said that you you did the packet and you, you know, you, you're a Thank God your dad said, you know, like, like put it in, give it, give it a shot. Mm -hmm. What I always tell people is never self-select. Yes. Never, never sell yourself short. Mm -hmm. Let somebody else tell you, you don't have what it takes or let somebody else say, we've picked other people besides you, Mm -hmm. but don't you be the person that self-selects yourself out of, uh, out of a tough challenge. I was scared of rejection. To be and honest, that's aren't what we it was. all aren't we all uh, scared of selection? What broke me was not making it when I didn't get picked to go back to the 75th Ranger Regiment as a field grade. It broke me. 
mm-hmm. cracked my foundation, mm-hmm. broke me, because I thought that that was the only thing that was success. Mm-hmm. That was it. If you did, if I didn't get that, I don't know what I was going to do. Yep. Right. But the not self-selecting and then giving yourself an opportunity to go out there and to to try mm-hmm. and go do something, you go through something and you're like, I'm not sure what I'm going to get out of Sam's. I'm not sure what I was going to get out of going to get a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And people said, Matt, you have to get a master's degree if you're going to be a lieutenant colonel in the army. Like if you're going to keep going, you need to get a master's degree. Mm-hmm. So I signed up to get a master's degree. I don't have the master's degree anywhere on any of my walls. I don't even know where the certificate is. <laughs> yeah. And that's irrelevant. Yeah. But the point is, is that where I got my master's, what it was in, that's not important. It's the person you became mm-hmm. going through that process. You're a different person when you came out of Sam's. Mm-hmm. I was a different person when I came out of my master's program mm-hmm. because I knew, similar to Ranger School, if I made it through this, I can make it through anything. Yeah. If I can get a go on this, and that guy told me, when that guy told me that my project was good enough, congratulations, you just finished your project. Like you now have a master's degree mm-hmm. and we'll send you your certificate in the mail to the 173rd out in Italy. Enough. It felt real good. And I put it in a folder and I think it's it's in my desk right now. I think it's somewhere hidden in my I Love Me book. Mm-hmm. But it was the more importantly, it's the person that you are now because you went through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and I think, you know, some people say it's when you become a believer or you're 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 part of the profession now. Again, I told you I don't really use that word, but I understand what they're saying. Um, when you're a major, because you know you're halfway through your career, um, you make the decision if you're going to do twenty or more. Uh, but for me, it wasn't so much about the timing. It, it was about I went and did a civilian master's while I was at Leavenworth. Then I did CGS or CGSE. Then I got you know with the Sam's got a second master's, and I was going through the mental ranger school while I was there. And where are my gaps? And man, I was falling in every gap you could imagine because I didn't, I barely survived company command and I did not want to barely survive as a field grade, not for my progression in the army so much, even though that is important. But what if we went to war again? And I didn't understand how to be a three or an XO or to think that uh, in the way that we need to be thinking to save our subordinates lives with good plans and good briefs. And identifying risk and helping the battalion and brigade commander to mitigate it. That's what I didn't understand. So when I came out of that three and a half years at Leavenworth, I think I was as be- I was at the best point in my life and career to be able to do those types of things for what the army, like we said at the very beginning, is going to ask us to do, which is incredibly taboo. Um, so it was just another transition. It was another gauntlet. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be able to do it or have done it. Amen. You just summed up a bunch of things. But now now you're a field grade officer and mm-hmm. soon to be a battalion commander. You're going to be a battalion commander. I hope so. Yeah. There. We'll find out here in January. Yeah. You, you'll find out uh, that you're going to be a battalion commander. And when you find out where, that you're going to be a battalion commander, where that at is irrelevant right now. Mm-hmm. Because you're going you're gonna to bring the same values. You're going to bring the same things that are important, the same life that you have before. Mm-hmm. And you're going to change people's lives as a battalion commander, wherever that might be. 
a lot of folks have already reached out to me and asked me like, Matt, like, what, what, what do I do to prepare as I wait to find out where I'm going to be a battalion commander? Mm-hmm. And what I always say is you're going to have the same values, mm-hmm. the same character, the same things that are important mm-hmm. are going to be important no matter what type of unit it is. Yeah. Whether it's an infantry battalion, whether it's a basic training battalion, mm-hmm. a recruiting battalion, a garrison command mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. your values are going to be the same. Yep. Your character is going to be the same. Lead, you're always going to need to p- develop leaders. Mm-hmm. Those things, you're always going to need to accomplish the mission of your higher headquarters. Yep. You're always going to need to help your com- the commander ahead of you, your higher headquarters, figure out what's important and help them solve problems. Those things aren't going to change. Mm-mm. Where it is might change. The location, the duty station, the exact type of mission – Okay, you might have to do live fires at Fort Stewart, Georgia, or you might have to do live fires at Fort Riley. You might have to do at Fort Lewis, and they might be at Schofield Barracks. But -hmm. guess what? The fundamentals of live fire are the same. Yep. And you can prepare for them Mm -hmm. because you have that foundation. Uh, And taking care of soldiers and families and and folks, it's going to be the same. Yeah. Because the fo- the families at a basic training battalion and a recruiting battalion, you're going to tell me they don't need to be taken care of? Yeah, exactly. You're 100% and right. And the, the, the senior NCOs, they don't need to be taken care of? They obviously – everybody needs to be taken care of. All soldiers are entitled to outstanding leadership. Yeah, absolutely, sir. Um, and so you're going to go – you're making this transition and you're getting ready to be a senior leader in our army. What is your advice for leaders as we go forward – we take this next step over the next three to five years. So my advice is really just a summarization of what we've been talking about. I think you can see in the, the stories, the limited stories I, I just spoke about, a person in the Army that believed their own hype, thought they were better than they were, and wasn't helping much of anyone. And that was me from... Oh, one to, to be honest, almost all the way through my captain years. When I went through the gauntlet that we discussed, um, I got to see that it's not about you. It's about the organization. And what do you need to be for the organization? So this is the, what I would say you need to do for leadership. Your character must be impeccable. You may make mistakes, but your character that influences everything that you do. Um, must be impeccable where you have honor, you have all, you have the leader acronym, what the army talks about. Um, because that's going to drive everything you do, even when you make a mistake. If your character is flawed, then that's going to be somebody that's going to look out for themselves. That's going to be somebody that is only looking at the current situation and how they're viewed. They're not looking at their subordinates in their organization. So character is number one. Um, two, I think you need to do, take every opportunity, like you said, sir, to be better. If the Army gives you the opportunity to go to a school and pay $90,000 for your master's degree, then take it because it's going to make it better or make you better for your subordinates. Many people won't do it because of the way I felt initially. I didn't want to be told no. I didn't want to fail again like I did in the SFQ course. I didn't want to be embarrassed because everybody thinks I'm G.I. Joe and I'm going to be a general and everything else. And everybody knows that's not the case. Anybody in the Army knows that. Um, 
That's what you think. But, <laughs> but, uh, that's not what I think. Uh, I, you were my cheerleader, sir. I appreciate you and love you for it. Um, but you take those opportunities and they're going to be hard. Sam's was very difficult for me, uh, because I'm not an academic and it's harder for me to remember things than other people. But man, it expanded my mind and understanding and my relationships more than almost anything I've done in the army. So take those opportunities. Um, third, I would say, the way that you get after the nuances that aren't in our professional military education is your relationships. It's your mentorship. A mentorship is not just for you to get somewhere. It's not for you to progress for your evaluations and things like that. It's for you to identify through other people the gaps that are out in front of you and the landmines that you don't know are there uh, so that you can do the best you can in whatever job you're put into and lead people the best way you can with the character that you know you're supposed to have, with the education that the army has given you or the military has given you, so that then when we have to go do the deed, you don't have to um, worry about, am I prepared? Um, and then last, remember the empathy that maybe you were seen or were not shown in your career for not only the service member, but for their foundation, their structure, their family. It may not be just the family at, at the post, it may be their mother and father that you need to contact because of whatever situations in that soldier's life, that is their strong suit. That is that is their cornerstone, their mother and father. Maybe their adopted mother and father bring them in and help that soldier, male or female, establish themselves um, as best they can before we ask them to go do what I talked about earlier. The most taboo thing in life, taking someone else's life. Because that's what we're going to ask you to do when the balloon goes up. So in my mind, that's that is leadership, and uh, that's my experience. So I appreciate you, sir. This is uh, fantastic, and thank you for everything you've done for me and my family, uh, and also, you know, my profession and uh, my career. Uh, you have been one of the most influential uh, in my life, and that's why you're not just you know a, a senior to me. You're you're my brother. You're like an older uncle to me. I love you. Uh, you are my family. We're going to keep up together till the day we die. So thank you. Well, cheers to that. Cheers to that. Thanks for listening today. I hope we sparked some thoughts about the people that have inspired you to be who you are today. I hope you share some of your thoughts and better yet demonstrate them for the people in your life. Our pursuit is to get a little bit better every day. Progress equals small victories stacked on top of each other, building like compound interest. Keep stacking these positive habits, habits like getting up early, working your butt off, learning something new, being positive, and surrounding yourself with phenomenal people. Please share your comments at the links in the show notes and DM us at Teach Me to Fish podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Looking forward to our next conversation. Keep it tight Love
keep the sky on your mind.